Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During Advent, we are doing a sermon series called The Road to Bethlehem. The goal of this series is to paint a total and complete picture of the world into which Jesus was born. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading from Matthew 2, 13 through 18. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be consoled, because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today uh, comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinus was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how's everybody doing today? Good? Good. I'm doing okay. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate that. So if you've been here through Advent, you know that we've been doing this sermon series called The Road to Bethlehem. Advent is pretty much over at this point. We're almost there. So as TC said, Friday, it's, it's going to be right here. We've been doing this sermon series where we've been talking about this idea of what was happening around the time Jesus was born. Most of us as Christians, we are familiar with the story of Jesus' birth from the Bible, are you not? I mean, we hear it every year and we celebrate it every year. But what happened to Jesus around the time, or what was happening at the time of Jesus' birth? What were the events? What were the the big things that were going on? What was happening culturally, religiously, politically, socially? All of these things are things that we don't know that much about. And so that was the purpose of this sermon series, and we're going to pretty much be ending it off today by talking about this idea of what is the full and complete picture of the world into which Jesus was born. So I want to take you back two weeks ago. Two weeks ago when I was preaching, I told you about the religious climate of Judea, of what was going on in and around that time. And basically what I told you was that in the region of Galilee, which is where Jesus is from, 
they were very expectant of the Messiah. So they were thinking the Messiah was going to come, and the Messiah was a man who was going to raise an army. He was going to fight against the Roman government, and he was going to establish Israel as an independent nation. I know this is probably a, an inkling of a memory you might have had from two weeks ago. Am I right about that? So it was a little while ago that we talked about this. And then last week, T.C. stepped up and preached a very good sermon. I could tell he begrudgingly talked about this a little bit because I asked, I was like, you got to talk about economics. And he's like, great, I can't wait to do that. So, so he did a very good job, though, and he kind of set the stage for what was happening economically at that time in Galilee. And I want to jump off of where he left off last week. I want to just talk briefly a little bit about the economics, and then we're going to get into the culture of what was happening at that time, because we're going to dive down into Nazareth, which of course is where Jesus grew up. So as TC told you last week, there was a wide range of people who lived in the area of Galilee. You had people who were extremely poor, and you also had people who were extraordinarily wealthy. And if we go back to when I first preached on this, we talked about Herod. And do you remember what I told you about Herod? He had this massive building campaign where he wanted to expand the temple, and he wanted to bring in amphitheaters and ports, and he built all these things. Well, to do this, he had to raise taxes. And he raised taxes substantially. Now, you would think, do people today like it when you raise taxes? Uh, no, they don't. And you would think that back then they wouldn't like it either, but they were getting so many great things out of it, and the economy was just booming at that time. Everybody was doing really well. What you have to realize is that around the time Jesus was born, everybody's standard of living was actually being raised quite substantially. Everybody was doing really, really well. And this includes the peasants who Jesus was a part of. That was his class. Now, unlike today, where in the economy, there's so many different jobs that you can do. Back in Jesus' day, there was just a handful of them. It's not too hard to like lay them all out for you. So at the bottom of the rung, the bottom of the ladder, you were farming and agriculture. And that was what 70 to 80% of the people at that time did. You'd grow your own food, you eat it, that's what you had. And there really wasn't much more to it than that. The next step up, and you made a little bit more money than the people who did farming and agriculture, were the construction workers. And this is day laborers. So this is, this is what Jesus did. He was a day laborer, a tecton, right? Now, going out and doing construction, these are the people who worked on Herod's projects. They were the ones who were out building. And you could have subspecialties within this. You could do stone masonry, tile cutting. You can even work with wood. Although I will tell you, and this is a little interesting uh, historical point, they didn't really have many woodworkers back in first century Galilee they mostly worked in stone. Likely, if Jesus was a special artisan, he would work in stone rather than wood. Just something to kind of throw out there, even though we tend to translate it as carpenter, which you can, it would likely, more likely be that he was a stone cutter. Right above him, where you started to actually make some decent money, were fishermen, metallurgists. These are the people who, of course, would work and mold metal. And, of course, as TC talked about last week, glass workers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. He's like, I got a whole cabinet full of glass, so I don't know why it's so special. Now, who were the people who Jesus called to him? Who were his main disciples? They were, they, what was their profession? Fishermen. Now, fishermen, they made a pretty decent living. 
And these guys, it would probably be a bit, it's anachronistic to say so, but they would have been like middle class. Because as TC told you so well, they've gone into, like they went into the house that Peter was a part of, right? Like they actually have Peter's old house or what they believed to be. And they found a ton of glassware in there. So what that tells you is, is that they were making enough money at one point that they could afford this glass. So right above them though, you have, above the fishermen, you have another class, which is the merchant class. So merchants, they would buy and sell goods. So they did pretty well. But after them, so that's pretty much all your working class people, there is a massive gap. And what you get to next are people who own land. Families who are aristocrats, who basically had inherited money over generations, and they just had massive amounts of wealth. So there was this kind of, everybody who's working, and then really the super ultra wealthy. Now, two weeks ago, I told you about a city in Galilee called Sephoris. Do you remember me telling you about this? This is where these people lived. They lived in this area right there in Sephoris. And so what I told you about this is that at one point in 4 BC, this is right after Herod dies. So Herod passes away. A man named Judas the Galilean goes into this city and he ransacks the city. And what he does is, he and 2,000 of his followers, they go into Herod's royal armory. That's the reason they go into it, is because Herod has his armory in this city. And so they go in, they break into the armory, and they take all the weapons, and then they go through the city, and they basically take over the city. Now, Rome, as you might imagine, was not too happy about this. So they send in their soldiers, who decimate Judas and his followers, and then they burn Sephoris to the ground, because they were so angry at the citizens of Sephoris for not better guarding their arsenal. Now, something else I told you two weeks ago was that five miles away from Sephoris was what? Do you remember? Nazareth. So five miles away, you have Nazareth. So if Sephoris is one of the wealthiest cities in Galilee, Nazareth was one of the poorest. And as you can see right there, Nazareth if you can, and if I could zoom in, you could see it a little bit better, but they're located up in the hill country. They're located up in there. So let's talk a little bit about Nazareth. What, what was Nazareth about? So what we can tell is Nazareth probably had somewhere around 100 families inside of it, inside of this little village. And this village, because it was up in the hill country, it was really isolated, it was remote. And to give you a sense of just how remote it was, when you've gone back in there, the way they would do it in the ancient world is they would have lists of cities and towns and villages where the tax collectors would go to to like collect their taxes, right? And so they have, there's one point, they found a list of all of the areas of Galilee where you go. Nazareth isn't even mentioned. So what that tells you, like today, Nazareth is important because of Jesus, right? But what that tells you is that it was so remote and so out of the way that they didn't, they told the tax collectors, don't even bother going there because there's just nothing for you to get. Like, it's just too much, it's not even worth your time. So, if you think about it, I, I kind of think a good analogy, and I've used this before a long time ago, but I don't know if you've ever been into like the hill country of West Virginia, but it's probably a bit like that. Because when you go into that hill country, there's places up there, you go in and there's like, there's just these small little communities of people, which is so far off the beaten path, Google Maps doesn't even like register its existence up there. Another way that you can kind of see the analogy between Nazareth, well, let me back up for a second, because I want to just talk, I want to talk just a little bit more about kind of what it was like. So, in this village, 
you probably have 100 homes thereabouts, right? So what that means is we have somewhere between two and 300 people. And what was life like there for them? Well, you have to think about it. The vast majority of these people are farmers. But they're farming land not on flat land, right? Which is why the Midwest is so great for farming. They're farming it on hills. And they're farming it in these like little gullies. It's really hard for them to make the food that they need. It was a hard life in that area. And then on top of that, they're really isolated from everybody else. They don't really know what's going on. They are really this kind of cloistered community. So again, if we come back to this analogy of West Virginia, and we think about, okay, these like hill country, it, what is West Virginia known for? If, if, you, if you think about it, West Virginia, like it's known for, have you ever met somebody from West Virginia? They have like these really unique accents, right? And this is no offense. If anybody grew up there, please don't think I'm saying anything. But I'm from Virginia. And of course, West Virginians were kind of known for their accents. They have, a, they, they have a thick accent, a drawl, and the further you get up into the mountains, the thicker it gets. And so what you have to realize is that Jesus would have been much the same way. Because he's in this isolated little community, he spoke Aramaic, but he would have spoke it with a drawl. He would have, he would have seen, I mean, it's probably not the best term to use, but he would have seemed like he was a hick to us if he was alive today. That's what we would say. Wow, like he's got like this really thick accent. Another way that you can understand the parallel between Nazareth and West Virginia is the educational system. So educationally, in West Virginia, I've taken many mission trips to West Virginia. I can tell you that the schools, particularly up in the mountains, are deplorable there. They just don't have the resources to really create decent schools there. And the same would have been true in Nazareth. So what you have to realize is that even though in Nazareth, if you've read the stories, you remember when Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and they say that he goes and he teaches in the synagogues. So that's what it says in the scripture. So the synagogue, of course, is a place of learning. Now, we've done archaeological digs. Well, I personally have not done it, but archaeologists have, and they've gone down to the level where Jesus would have lived. So they've gone down to the first century around his time. They have found no structure there that would indicate that there was a synagogue in that area. Now, that makes sense, though, because it's just like it is today. Rural areas around the world usually lack education. And the same is going to be true in Galilee. It's a very rural, rural, right? If you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so it's a very rural area. So, and this is also something just to keep in mind, which is that in the entire area of Galilee, not just like Nazareth, but the entire area of Galilee, there was a 96% illiteracy rate just in the entire region. So if you imagine someplace like Nazareth, which is really in the middle of nowhere, they had no education and they were all probably illiterate. So what this means is that these people who were there, they were Jewish, but they were culturally Jewish. Meaning they didn't really know the scriptures, but they knew the traditions. The traditions would have been passed down from one generation to the next. And one generation, or one tradition that they would have followed very closely is that if a young girl got pregnant while she was engaged, the elders of the town would have gathered together to have her stoned to death. This was a very common thing that would have happened. Now, we don't often think of Mary as being subject to such a harsh punishment because she's pregnant with Jesus, of course. But you have to remember, she's in this little isolated community. It's not like they have courts and all these things. They did justice on their own. So if they found out about this, they would have taken her out, they would have stoned her to death. Now, the scriptures tell us that there are two possible ways that she gets out of this. The first way comes from Matthew. 
And Matthew tells us that essentially her fiancé Joseph revokes his right to have her stoned. So basically, he's a good guy, and he decides, you know what, I don't want to stone her to death. I'm going to divorce her quietly, and therefore she won't be killed. That's option number one. Option number two comes from Luke. So basically what happens is, as soon as they find out that she is pregnant, her parents, they're like, we're going to send you off to be with your cousin Elizabeth. So they get her out of town so that the elders of the town will not see that she's pregnant and won't stone her to death. And this, of course, allows her to come to full term and will allow the family to kind of save a little face in terms of their, their reputation. So those are your two options that are given to us in the scriptures. We weren't there. We don't know what happened. It could, Matthew could be right. Luke could be right. They could both be right. They could both be wrong. Because there's a third option we don't often think about in this, which I think is kind of fascinating, which is that if Mary became pregnant before she was engaged, under those conditions, she wouldn't be stoned to death. Because here's the thing. The law about stoning, the way that it worked, was that you had to be engaged or married because the law was about adultery. That's what the law was about. And if you're not engaged or you're not married, you're not committing adultery and therefore you can live. Now, if that was the case, and that's not what the scriptures tell us, but it's a possibility, right? If that was the case, her problem would be finding a husband. Because at that point, once you've gotten pregnant, you're not eligible to become married. So if there's any truth to the story of Joseph, though, what it tells us is that he was willing to be with her irrespective of the circumstances. All right, you with me so far? All right. So we spent some time, obviously, talking about Nazareth and what was happening in Nazareth. And, of course, Nazareth is really important because what happens when Jesus starts to go out and preach? When he goes out, what, who is he known as? He's actually known as Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that's, that's how closely linked Nazareth is to his identity. They could have called him a lot of different things, but they call him Jesus of Nazareth. And yet this morning, what we read in the scriptures, both Matthew and Luke, is that Jesus is born not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. Now, the reason for this, according to Luke, is what we read, which is that essentially the emperor of the Roman Empire, he decides, you know what, we're going to have a census. We're going to take a census of the entire region. And censuses, just so that we're all clear, they had censuses for the same reason back then that we do today. They want to know how many people you got, so you know how many people you can tax, right? I mean, that's the important thing. You got to know how many people you have, so you know how much revenue you're going to bring in. Now, according to the scriptures, what happens is, once this decree gets over to Judea, they are told that they all need to return to their hometown of origin, the origin of their tribe. And of course, we have somebody like Joseph, he comes from the tribe of David, which is the tribe of Judah. And so he is told, you need to return back to your hometown of Bethlehem, which is why he's born in Bethlehem, because he has to go back for the census and marries basically at full term, and then she ends up giving birth there. Now, I will tell you that there are a few little problems with this story historically. The first problem has to do with the census itself. So the census itself, it's the same today as it was back then, which is that if you're going to count somebody, you want to count somebody as living where they are now. So if, you're going to, if, if we're taking a census today and they said, okay, Alex, you need to go back to your hometown of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and I go all the way back to my hometown and they say, okay, where do you live now? Oh, I live in Arlington Heights. 
which is in Chicago. They're like, okay, well, they have to write that down, right? That doesn't work. The idea is that you want to count the people where they are. So if you live in Bethlehem, I want to count you as living in Bethlehem so I can send my tax collectors to tax you in Bethlehem, right? The idea of you going to your hometown of origin would be a bureaucratic nightmare because when they would write it down, they'd be like, okay, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Nazareth. Okay, so then they would have to figure out how many people are from Nazareth. They'd have to put it all together, right? It's much easier if I just send somebody to you and you're in Nazareth and I write you down as being in Nazareth and we just take a census of where everybody is. It's the same principle today. You with me? All right. The second issue is actually much, much bigger than the first when it comes to the census. So, there was a census that was taken. We know this is a historical fact. Augustus very much did a census. But he did it in 6 AD. That's when it happened. Now, why is this problematic, besides the fact that it's supposedly six years after Jesus was born? It's problematic because Matthew and Luke placed Jesus' birth when Herod the Great was alive. And when did I tell you he died? 4 BC. So the problem is, is that there's a gap of about 10 years between when Jesus could have been born, right, which is with Herod's death, and then the census itself, which is taken in 6 AD. So you can't have it both ways, right? You can't say Jesus was born during Herod's reign, and then at the same time also say, well, he was born during the census. So what are we going to do with this, right? This is a bit problematic. Well, we kind of have to take a step back and ask, why does Luke want Jesus to be born in Bethlehem? Because clearly that's the, the goal of the census, right? The whole point of the story is he ends up in Bethlehem. Because the whole idea is, is that if you're a Jewish reader of this, and you know the background of the whole idea of David, where did, and who is David? David is what? He was the king of Israel, right? So the whole idea is, is that for the reader, they're trying to sit there and he's trying to say, look, Jesus is going to be like the new King David. He will be like the new King of Israel because he's the Messiah, right? You with me so far on that? Okay. So why does Matthew do it? Matthew does it for a similar reason. Of course, in Matthew, what happens is Jesus is just born in Bethlehem. And then Joseph, Jesus's adopted father, he gets a message from an angel who says, I would like you to take Jesus and Mary down to Egypt because what's going to happen, Herod's going to come in to the town of Bethlehem and is going to kill all of the, everybody who's two years old and under. So get out of there. Now, again, this is historically a bit suspect simply because we have a list of all the things that Herod did during his lifetime. Like people wrote histories of him because he was a pretty big figure. And he did some pretty horrific things. I've told you about those like a couple weeks ago. So if he actually did commit infanticide, I can tell you right now, it would have made the list for sure. Because he did other things that were equally as horrific as that. But it's not a part of that. So we would sit there and we'd say, well, that likely didn't happen. So why again did Matthew write this? Well, Matthew wrote it for a different reason. Because uh, Jesus' adoptive father, what's his name? Joseph. And where's the only other Joseph that you find in the Bible? There's only one other Joseph in there. And what's, what's the book? Huh? Genesis. Yes, right. That's why I say Genesis is everything, everybody. Like, you got to know Genesis because it's ha- it, it ends up helping you with the rest of the Bible. Okay, so Joseph's story in Genesis, what happens to him? He's, he's enslaved, and where does he get sent to? Egypt. Same place that Jesus is going, right? And what happens there? 
When he's in Egypt, he rises up from slavery to become the leader. And of course, he ends up saving his family and all the other families from starvation. He saves everyone. The idea being exactly the same. Jesus is going to come from nothing. He's going to rise up to save the people of Israel. Now, all of this raises a really interesting question. Which is, if we were going to fill out Jesus' birth certificate, and we were going to put the location where he was born, what would we write down? Now, I think traditionally, what would we write? We'd write what? Bethlehem, right? But given the information that I have just shared with you now, that calls all of that into question, does it not? So for me, I can tell you, this is me personally, if I were writing it down, I can tell you that I would write his place of birth as being Nazareth. And the reason why is because he is called Jesus of Nazareth. I don't think it's too hard to make that leap. Now, also, I think you need to know, and again, I'm just telling you my opinion, I actually think that it's more important that he was born in Nazareth than he be born in Bethlehem. And let me tell you why. Because as a child who would have been born out of wedlock, that ends up defining a lot of what the Christian faith is all about. Because you have to think about it. As a child who is seen as the product of infidelity, or at least perceived infidelity, as he's growing up, he would be treated as an outcast by his community. No family of good standing in Nazareth would allow their daughter to marry Jesus. Because as an illegitimate child, that wouldn't work for them. And this is why in the Gospels, he is never portrayed likely as being married. Because that was not an option for him growing up. It's because you just couldn't have that happen. And so I just want you to think about this for a second. Nazareth is a marginalized community already, is it not? And Jesus is now the marginalized among the marginalized. That's how far off he is with it. So as he grows up, and he's kind of living in this community, and he's living as an outcast, his entire movement is catered towards people like himself. People who are on the margins, people who are on the edges, the least, the lost, the downtrodden. These are his people. It's not like he chooses them, he's part of them. And I think this is something we really need to keep in mind as we barrel towards Christmas on Friday, which is that Jesus' birth, in my opinion, is something that truly does need to be celebrated. Like, to me, Jesus' birth is truly good news for the world. But what I see happening in many churches is that that good news is watered down or whitewashed completely. Because this is what I hear in most churches. The reason why Jesus' birth is good news is because he saves us from an eternity in hell. And I will tell you right now, that I disagree with that. I do not think that is the good news of Jesus' birth, in my opinion at all. In my opinion, the good news of Jesus' birth, which I believe happened in Nazareth, is that the way that he grew up, was born and grew up in that town, in that little village, it defines everything about his life and the way I have to live my life. So Jesus is born as an outcast, and he tells me I have to be a friend to the outcast. Jesus is born into poverty, and he tells me that it is my responsibility to use my resources to raise others out of poverty. Jesus was born into a harsh and violent world, and he tells me that I have to love my enemy, turn the other cheek, and embrace radical kindness. 
Jesus' birth is revolutionary. Because from the moment he was born, the world would never be the same. That moment, 2,000 years ago, would transform each subsequent generation of his followers. And if you call yourself a Christian, if you identify that way, you are part of that revolution. Every generation inches us a little bit closer to the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, the idea is that everybody has enough food to eat. Everybody has a roof over their head. Everybody has clothes on their back. Everybody's treated for their illnesses. Nobody is forgotten. That, my friends, is the revolution of who Jesus was. That is the good news of his birth. And that is what I look forward to celebrating with you on Friday. Now, I know that not all of you are going to be here on Friday, and so if you're not, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I look forward to seeing hopefully the rest of you here, and we're going to have a wonderful celebration because last year we couldn't be here together, and I'm really looking forward to being together again to celebrate Jesus' birth and the good news that he's going to bring to our world. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.